Hello, my name is Raj Mehta. Welcome back to Richard Lehman Discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? Uh, I'm fine, thanks, Raj. Um, in the English winter, um, mulling over this interesting problem of how we apply evidence to the treatment of individual patients and whether we can actually uh, use trial evidence directly to do that. Um, and we've tried to work out a, a, some kind of mental grid to discuss this question, but um, I suspect that we will end up going um, round and round in our usual fashion to some extent, but we'll try and move forward. Um, so do kick off, Raj. We will do our best, Richard. This is a interesting question because it seems so simple at the surface. If someone was to ask me or any of us, what works for the individual patient? Then you think, oh, we could say this drug or this treatment works, this doesn't. Hopefully we can get a straightforward answer. But uh, it turns out this question has a lot of underlying complexity to it. And to really answer the question, we first have to understand what the question itself is asking. Um, and when I've thought about this, I've kind of come up with three different important things we have to consider when we ask this question, what works for individual patients? The first is we have to kind of understand what causality is, because when we ask what works, we're really asking, do we know that there is a cause and effect relationship for our intervention or for the action we're doing? So that's very important. Um, second, we have to ask what it means by individuals and patients, and not just what we mean by patients, how we define our patients, but how we define the diseases that are affecting them. Because if we don't understand what we're talking about in terms of the person in front of us, it makes it hard for us to do any generalizing. And then the third part, and this is the most subtle, is when we're asking what works for a person, um, we have to understand that there has to be some meaningful outcome or benefit. We can't just assume what it means to work. We have to kind of tease out what that means. What is truly meaningful? And sometimes we can have differences, um, but if it's not meaningful, um, then it may not be perceived as working. So those are the three parts. And I think maybe we should begin with the first one. Richard? Absolutely. Um, I This, this um, comes under the heading of causality, which is a difficult concept. Um, in science generally um, and the philosophy of science, but we're not going to go into that. Um, here we're going to try and um, just come up with a very clear idea of what we mean by cause and effect when we're using treatments. Um, there is, of course, um, usually some kind of physiopathological or biochemical reason that we use treatments, um, and we try to fit the the, the uh, uh, chemical pathology of the patient or the, the known disease process um, with the treatment that seems to address that. And, you know, the uh, common thing is to uh, find a receptor for whatever we're dealing with, like uh, uh, an alpha adrenergic um, or beta adrenergic receptor, and then you put in an alpha blocker or a beta blocker. Um, and uh, we therefore say that if we improve the condition, that must be because of causality. We've, we've got a nice, simple fit there, like uh, two pieces of jigsaw coming together. Um, most of medicine isn't quite as simple as that. 
Uh, and so um, this chain of logic may get very extended indeed, and we may then have to fall back on the idea that um, this this treatment has, we don't know how this treatment works, but it's been used on an awful lot of people. So it's very likely to um, work for you. Let's give it a try. And that is a sort of form of rather strained causality. Um, so I would perhaps tend to avoid the term causation here in in the clinical sense and reserve that just for the science. But never mind, we, that, that's a good starting point. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. And there is a bit of philosophy underlying this. It begins with a very important point that many people assume that the interventions we do in medicine has a mechanistic explanation, as you point out, a logical chain of thought as to why drug or intervention X works and how it works to benefit someone. But one of the challenges I find with biological systems is that they're extremely complex. And that complexity makes it very difficult for us to predict what's going to happen. Um, in simple physics, or perhaps even in engineering, you can have reliable models with few variables, so you can make clear predictions. Human physiology is infinitely complex. And despite our best attempts to understand it, and sometimes we do succeed, uh, it's not always a reliable model we can have. And many times I feel, if you look at the history of science, we make serendipitous discoveries, and then we kind of go back to find an explanation for it, not vice versa. Absolutely. And uh, typical um, uh, example is the use of uh, serotonin um, uptake, reuptake uh, re inhibitors uh, in depression. Uh, a depression is a very loose term. Uh, we may come onto this later if we if we get back onto this ground. Um, we understand the synapse um, of nerves incompletely. We can't go in the brain and measure what's happening across synapses. Um, we assume that because these drugs have a particular effect on serotonin uptake um, in, in synapses, that that's the way they work. But in fact, um, we, we can look at the drugs that are used in depression. Some of them have the opposite effect and actually increase serotonin reuptake. And we cannot predict which of these drugs is going to work in any particular person. And um, because the uh, course of human misery is, is often unpredictable, um, we're left guessing in, in the individual case. In a group case, you can look at the trials and find out that these drugs have very little effect. If you look at outliers, you can sometimes find that they have a massive effect um, in some people and pure harm in others. So um, there we have an example of complexity, uh, a lack of a plausible causal explanation, uh, although um, the wide use of an implausible uh, mechanistic explanation. Um, and I think that applies to certain other drug classes as well, and may, may even apply to ACE inhibitors for all I know. But anyway, let's not go there because... <laughs> well, it, it brings up another a very important way that we can establish how things work, which is through observation. And certainly when you have interventions with very dramatic, large effects that seem reproducible, 
it seems almost obvious. So we gave this medicine, this patient improved. We, we did this several times. I think that's clinical experience lends itself to doing that. And there are lots of historical examples for that. Um, and it, when that approach works, it seems quite fantastic, but it's not always a reliable approach because not all interventions have such dramatic effects. And when they're yeah. smaller or more modest, we're kind of left wondering, well, how do we how do we figure out what works and what doesn't work? Yes, and um, the randomized controlled trial, for all its undoubted virtue, um, doesn't tell us this in individuals necessarily. Um, in fact, if effect sizes are so big, uh, as you said, we don't really need randomized controlled trials. Um, we just need to give people penicillin, um, which didn't have randomized controlled trials. Um, streptomycin did, but it was already pretty obvious that it worked for TB and so on. Um, the randomized trial is particularly useful when effect sizes are borderline and um, applied to populations rather than individuals. Um, and a, a hierarchy of <clears throat> randomized trials um, or a, a, a hierarchy derived from randomized trials in the form of a forest chart and um, a systematic review may well tell us um, what we would be um, rational in using as our first choice treatment for a particular condition. But it may, it seldom tells us exactly what it's going to do to an individual. And I think that's another point that we're going to come into in uh, along to in this discussion. Yes, the randomized control trial is a rather amazing magic trick. Well, perhaps I shouldn't call it magic. It's a rather wonderful breakthrough in science in that it, by eliminating confounders and giving us a great way to determine if interventions work in groups, it really has solved many of these issues we have of determining if something works or doesn't work. So that's quite wonderful. And it's the reason RCTs are the gold standard for us in medicine. The challenge, especially to our question, which is what works for an individual patient, is that RCTs are done in groups and large populations of people, because that's how they have to be done. And so we knew that something might work in a large population with certain characteristics and certain disease signs. But then taking that information and trying to figure out what does that mean for the one patient in front of us? And, you know, even just interpreting what does it mean for the many patients in that group, that gets a bit trickier. It certainly does. And um, this is the nub of, of the problem, isn't it? That um, uh, particularly if you're looking at preventive treatments, most of the people who take them gain no benefit whatsoever. Um, and we've come on, we've discussed this before and we'll discuss it again, I'm sure, because, yes, you know, in, in the context of statins or of blood pressure lowering treatment or even of cancer heart, screening, uh, cancer screening. Um, yes. Um, uh, and all of these treatments or screening procedures or interventions uh, do have potential harms for individuals, which can't necessarily be predicted or reversed. Anyway, um, we were talking about causality there. Uh, causality is easy if it's um, big and certain. Um, 
let's say uh, we can be very certain that a particular treatment is going to have an effect on meningitis because it's cured meningitis in the past. Uh, as we said, it's by no means so certain that uh, anything will cure depression, though actually ECT probably has the best evidence base in, in crude terms for that. Um, I think it's probably time we moved on from the causality then um, and chains of logic to um, how that depends on how we define the condition that we want to treat. And I think you've come, that's a very important point that perhaps you want to talk about a bit more. Yes, it is important because whether we're talking about causality from observations or clinical experience or high evidence-based randomized control trials, this is information involving other persons, right? And then we have to generalize this knowledge, this data we have, to the individual patient we are now treating in front of us. And generalizing information, uh, this process, requires us making additional assumptions if we're taking logical steps. And some of those assumptions are, is this patient similar to the patients that were treated in our randomized control trial group? Is the disease state similar? How similar are there? Are there differences? When we talk about individuals, it's really important to know, you know, gender, age. We sometimes wonder if there are genetic differences that can contribute to it, social demographic differences, countries you might be living in, access to social hazards, environmental hazards, physical hazards, so many elements unknown that we don't necessarily consider that can come into play for that person and how something may benefit them. The real world gets quite complex. And then some of that, we can get to know our person and make the best guess. The flip side of that coin is then the characteristics of the disease itself. And this one's much trickier for us in medicine because we're defining these diseases, but how good are those diagnostic labels? How consistent are they? If we're using them in a research study where perhaps they have more advanced abilities to make good diagnosis, is that equally reproducible in our real world setting if we don't have the same high accuracy tests or available technology and so on? Um, if they're diagnosis by exclusion, can we be making them too broad or too narrow? And then if it becomes muddied and we're unsure of those disease characteristics, it makes us harder to say with confidence that our information about what works can necessarily be generalized to the person. Of course, if we're very confident, then that makes us feel stronger about it and makes us stronger in our recommendation we might be giving to a patient. I think you're on mute, Richard. <laughs> I, I coughed. I, uh, <laughs> I muted a cough and got cut off. Um, yes, uh, all this is um, very much to the point. Um, we live in, in complexity, uh, which is absolutely excluded as far as possible from randomized control trials. Um, and we are supposed to know the populations included in these RCTs, whereas of course we don't. Uh, and we often depend on systematic reviews, which in fact take away even more of the detail so that by the time um, we're given rules and numbers needed to treat and um, guidelines, 
uh, an awful lot of what we need to know really if we were going to address the individual patient has disappeared from this and um, and can't be reintroduced without us going to a day's worth of work for every clinical decision we make. Mm. And we have to explain these decisions as we're going along to the patient as well. And all this becomes uh, a seemingly impossible task. In fact, um, it is in a strict sense, but we chunk it up and we do it by heuristics that actually work. Um, and we should address those heuristics if we're going to improve them and not go off to, into a, on a tangent about some illusory system of, of fine detail, because that's never really going to be available to us. The other delusion is that we can solve the problem by doing N of 1 trials on individual patients. Mm -hmm. But conditions are rarely stable enough to do that. Uh, we're implying a lack of trust in what the patient tells us if we're giving them placebo alternated with active drug. Um, we can't get hold of like-looking placebos, and the patient would probably guess anyway. So although that's a lovely idea in theory, it's not actually um, very often put into practice. Um, and it would work best for symptomatic conditions, uh, which are stable uh, and um, those aren't that common. Uh, what we're dealing with often are drug combinations, and again, that introduces complexity. So um, the idea that we have lovely clear evidence from randomized controlled trials um, and lovely genomics that tells us exactly what's going on in any given system, and then we just plug that in and come up with the right answer is something that um, is being promised every five years by some computer company and always fails and probably <laughs> always will fail. Um, but let's let's be optimistic and say that might apply to a tiny proportion of medical practice. Individual patients, on the other hand, uh, want reassurance and trust in us personally uh, if they're going to do what we say. And... Um, in front of them, we use a whole lot of um, very crude shortcuts, which lead us into error very often, but um, sometimes that's inevitable. And these include uh, what's worked before in our personal practice, that is in, with other patients. Often we actually use examples if, if we've had the condition of what's worked for us. Um, Sometimes we use observational studies or anecdotes that we've picked up talking to other clinicians. All these are highly inadmissible in strict um, EBM, of course. And then, as we've already mentioned, mechanistic logic. You know, if you take this drug, it's bound to do you good because it lowers this or raises that or blocks that. And um, these, are, these are the things that we try to employ for individual-based medicine. And uh, I think we'll continue to struggle uh, in that realm. Uh, I, I'm not going to come up with a beautiful answer. <laughs> but if you've got, please let us know. Well, I think the importance of highlighting, understanding some of these challenges is that it makes us a little bit more mindful of 
how we can go astray. Like we begin the first part discussing the challenges with using mechanistic logic to try and predict what's going to happen. And that's one of the reasons we are cautious about using surrogate markers as a sign of benefit, because you can have some surrogate in your mechanism predicting benefit. And if your surrogate's improving, you might say, oh, our final outcome will improve. But that doesn't always align because we can't always predict that well. And we have to have really well-validated surrogates before we should just assume that's something that we can use reliably. Uh, similarly, this challenge with RCTs in large groups of individuals, how do you tease out potential individual differences that might be actionable to, to make predictions on who or may not benefit? And so people try to look at subgroups. Is there a subgroup in this characteristic population diseases, maybe some with some variation or some other characteristics? And although with good intentions, we look at subgroups, we found through experience that many subgroups end up becoming diving into data that's not reliable, making wrong associations. And it's very hard to look at subgroups and find out what's going on. You either need very large RCTs or crossover trials or some other design and attempts at people to try and solve this complex problem with expectations, genomics, or personalized medicine um, sometimes have the best of intentions, but uh, it's not such readily solvable with these things because of the nature of this. And it comes back fundamentally to how we're defining these disease characteristics. If there was such an easy to define difference in disease characteristics that there were subgroup differences, we probably would have already defined in the disease itself and so on. So lots of challenges here, and they and they come back to the the fundamental issue of trying to figure out what's working for a patient. Yes, um, I, I think um, that we we throw away quite a lot of the data that could guide us because it's very difficult to analyze. It's difficult to input, and then it's very difficult um, to go through and. Um, it would require, at the moment, uh, an immense amount of human effort misdirected because it wouldn't be taking, it would take the doctor's attention uh, away from the patient. But in theory, every consultation could yield some information about, um, or most consultations, um, which involve choices between treatments could yield some information about those treatments. Um, this is something that's been talked about for a, a long time. Uh, it would embed clinical investigation into ordinary practice, and it would have to be done by some very sophisticated form of AI so that the AI could ask to could um, sort out what the question is and then um, report it in some way that's actionable. And then we would have to depend on there being some glorious um, research infrastructure paid for by a multi-billionaire that would actually support the, um, um, the kind of analyses that would then yield uh, questions, hypotheses for randomized control trials and pay for the trials. So this is very... <laughs> Much, it's an exciting uh, pie, future potentially pie in the sky but let's hope the sky eventually delivers pies maybe in your life <laughs> someone else's um it's certainly delivering all sorts of uh, phallic looking rockets and stupid pieces of hardware but um you'd have thought that it might 
be able to address this sort of question, not yet. Um, so that's, that's a, I mean, I think that clinical encounters, patients themselves, primary care doctors should actually be the chief generating mechanism uh, for randomized controlled trials and hypotheses. Um, but of course, that's far from being the case. And <clears throat> what we have is often a mechanistic a lab to bedside approach, which is the wrong way around. The lab decides that it's found a molecule that might work for something, and then some poor chaps have to, um, some some poor people have to a do the trial and b be the trial subject, and that that is still um, the normal way round. We could have a great cycle from individual patients to um, the evidence that we need to treat them but it's incomplete in all sorts of places at the moment. And um, we need to keep it as an ideal, but not pretend that, we've, uh, that we're anywhere near reaching it with methods. So that's my sermon on that. Um, now, we were going to move forward then to um, the question of um, definition of meaningful outcomes. Uh, yes. So let's come back to that, right? Yes. So the third and one of the most important aspects of asking what works for this for the individual patient is understanding that the the person that decides what works is the patient. They are the driver, they are the autonomous person here. And that there is a a passive assumption in that that what works is not defined by us as the doctor necessarily or some scientist or researcher, but what the patient finds meaningful and that we can have data that things are making a difference, they're changing outcomes that we may find important. But if we don't share that with our patients and if those values and preferences of what is meaningful is not shared, then despite all the differences we might be making for that patient, they may not feel that something is working. And so their perception of this question is really important and it ties back to the importance of having this discussion, having them hearing from them, understanding what they consider is meaningful, and then persuading them if, if necessary, why you think they should also find other outcomes meaningful for the interventions being done. And this, this begins oftentimes just in a regular appointment we're seeing patients, but it should push itself all the way through even to research planning when we're determining what things to study and how we're gonna be studying it. Are we measuring things that are meaningful to patients here? Yes, um, absolutely. And um, I think we're, we're getting nearer to the ideal here through the use of patient-reported outcome measures and um, insisting that patient-reported outcome measures should be used to design the outcome measures of trials, the primary outcome measure and the secondary outcome measures because that's how trials are um, set up statistically. Um, if you get a, a meaningful um, secondary outcome measure, you've got a problem in a sense if, if, the, if the study hasn't been able to measure that in the first instance, if it hasn't been uh, uh, that way. But even so, you've got a good piece of knowledge about something that wasn't um, there at the outset, but that was suggested to you by groups of patients. You could even, I think, um, 
go one stage further and ask every participant in a trial to name the outcome that they most value or the top three outcomes perhaps and then for them to mark the treatment out of those three categories you know by whatever means you like a Likert scale or one out of ten or whatever um, that wouldn't introduce an impossible amount of arithmetical uh, complexity and it would give the patient the feeling uh, the participant in the trial the feeling that they that they were actually uh, being listened to and things were being measured for them as an individual as well as for the group uh, I haven't had the opportunity to put this idea to um, trialists and I suspect they would say oh no we can't do that um, but I'm putting it out on this podcast just in case somebody thinks it's a good idea um, and who knows it might even gain traction I think, <laughs> I think it's a cool idea, Richard. Um, I'm going to take a moment to play devil's advocate here because there are some people who will say the idea of doing shared decision-making and always discussing everything with patients is very nice, but in reality, I'm, I'm in a busy clinic. I've got 5, 10, 15 minutes with a patient. I can't always be sitting here asking them, oh, what's your preferred outcome for every single problem in every single intervention that I'm going to recommend. And certainly, I think it's fair to say that sometimes some outcomes are universally acceptable as meaningful because they're self-evident, like something might might large to, might lead to a large improvement in mortality in patients who aren't end of life or something like that. Um, I do think, however, that when we get to more modest or smaller effect sizes, patient preferences on what's meaningful becomes much more important. We should be more sensitive to it. And I think this becomes very tricky when we're discussing population health or even cost-effectiveness models. In these situations, we're often looking at large populations and small benefits from an individual can aggregate into large benefits for populations. And stakeholders for public health might find, well, because this is so beneficial at population level, we should make these recommendations to do these things. Whereas for the individual, their perception of that benefit for them may differ and they may see it as smaller and they may have different views on it. So it's a tricky thing to navigate this, especially when there are conflicts sometimes between recommendations and ideas of benefit versus what patients perceive. And it also makes it challenging because you can have this cognitive dissonance where you say, well, this works for the individual patient, but for this patient, they also think this doesn't work, and that can be both true and not true at the same time. Yes, um, you, you've uh, raised a number of issues there. I think um, let's let's perhaps go for a concrete example: um, palliative care um, mm -hmm. and end of life care. And some patients will have very clear preferences about duration of life and um, uh, and relief of symptoms. Um, but there will be a wide range. And a very frequent question is whether they want to go to hospital um, if, if um, they're nearing death. Um, people have used very good methods, I think, to try and 
ask these questions ahead of time. And I think that's an example um, that we can learn from in the wider sphere where we can ask patients, to what extent do you wish to be the determiner of, of what treatment you get? You know, how, how involved do you want to be with this process? Um, and particularly if you get really poorly, um, how, what, what do you think you might want to do? Just whatever the doctor decides or do you want a particular course of action? Um, so first of all, we need to assess what, how much the patient uh, wishes to be involved. And then I think, although it may seem an awfully complex field um, where we can't possibly explain everything, we can actually ask patients directly what is most important to them in terms of the, what they hope to achieve from a treatment. And this is absolutely necessary for any irrevocable form of treatment like a knee replacement. You know, I want to be able to kneel down and do my gardening again. Don't have a knee replacement because you won't be able to kneel down. Um, that's, a, that's a very concrete example of, of how people can, can have false expectations. Um, then with other forms of treatment, let's face it, we're GPs. We do trial and error a lot, don't we? We, we allow the patient to say, um, well, if I can't have cognitive behavioral therapy because it isn't available for, for several months, can I try an antidepressant? You say, yes, um, we could. Um, this and this side effect, uh, that they can have these and these side effects. Uh, and these and this rate of benefit, but we don't know ahead. Are you willing to, to give it a go and say, no way, doctor, if it's going to stop me having sex or um, it's going to make my sleep terrible, um, those are chances I'm not going to take. And so we have these dialogues and we base them on very insufficient evidence. We don't know what they're going to do to an individual. And yet we're actually ar arriving at an individual course of action. Um, so I think um, on the plus side, that's our job and we do it tolerably well, I think, a lot of the time. Um, whether it will be improved by greater biochemical knowledge and um, genotyping and so on remains to be seen. I think probably it will in the very long term. But right now, um, we can put that aside almost as bullshit. And, and just do the job as we as we best can with the information we best can and think of ways of gathering better information for the future. This brings up such a great point, which is a lot of how we approach what works for individual patient in primary care is really empiric treatments. It's a lot of N of one trials. Then you can do formal N of one trials in RCT, but we're, we're just doing them in we're giving something to a patient. We see if it helps. We stop it. We see if there is a change. Um, and that can be wonderfully informative if done in the right way and safely. And sometimes it doesn't clarify. Was that effect real? Was it a placebo effect or regression to the mean? But sometimes that's what we're left with. And if we're able to bring some benefit, uh, it's a very reasonable and very valid and very important toolkit for us. Yes, I think the listening itself and the willingness to, to be guided by the patient itself is, is therapeutic. Um, and we could go into that and, and go, go get into 
some fairly obscure and difficult debates about placebo effects and personal effects. Let's go to the flip side, perhaps, to uh, end with, um, we, because we were talking about um, treatments that have population benefits, but very small benefits to any given individual. And how do we individualize those treatments? Mm -hmm. um, and it's been on my mind for some time, and I was trying to sort of flip the model very easy to put everybody onto statins and blood pressure lowering drugs. And I've kind of come around to the idea that that's perhaps what we have to do in, or at least have to offer um, in, in population terms. But if we were going to look at it the other way, we would say that the number needed to treat for a, a, a person with mildly elevated um, <clears throat> LDL and um, uh, a mildly elevated blood pressure in midlife to get a benefit over 10 years, perhaps we have to treat 300 people to avoid an event, might be exaggerating there, maybe it's 100. But the other but the other 99, if it's 100, would be taking those drugs and getting no benefit whatsoever. Um, do we mind that? Um, are we thinking of individualizing risk scores to the point where we can take people off medication i don't i haven't seen that debate um really it's been entirely in the direction of um huge randomized trials lowering the threshold for giving things <laughs> or am i wrong i think that when we ask what works for an individual patient it needs to be coupled. It should be start something of when is this no longer working for them? So I yeah. think when we're doing population health, when you're young and maybe the effects as is small, modest, but real, we can say, let's do it. And then when you're in older age and if you're still healthy and now the survival gains from this are really almost infinitesimal. And you say, well, at this point, maybe I don't need to take this mess anymore. It's also reasonable to stop. So I, I think we don't, we, we always revisit this question, and I think- We should always revisit this question. You go to any nursing home and you'll find that it's never revisited in real life. That's so, right. Uh, <laughs> we, we shouldn't assume just because it was working in the past that it will continue to, nor that if it didn't work in the past, it's not worth trying again either. So. And let's face it, the whole model of, of drug development favors drugs that where uh, the individual effect is almost impossible to determine. I mean, your triple inhaler for a COPD patient may cost uh, $100 a week or whatever. That patient is never actually going to know whether it's prevented an exacerbation because we don't know things that we don't, that don't happen. We only know the things that do happen. And um, so the whole business of, of long-term preventive drugs, particularly when they're expensive, uh, is um, and not something we can individualize and does does actually co cost systems an enormous amount of money and people an enormous amount of confusion. So that's the, the downside. I think we've probably come to the end, so perhaps we can recap and look at what we think we have um, and uh, determine from this discussion. So my summary of our discussion, my initial points were 
when we ask what works for the individual patient, we're actually asking three different questions. One, we're asking what is cause and effect? How do we establish that an intervention has causality and affects a specific outcome? Number two, we're asking who is individual patient? How are we defining them? And how are we defining the disease characteristics that we are applying our treatment to? And if we have consistent, reliable, reproducible definitions that makes it easier for to generalize information, and if it's not as consistent or there are differences, it makes it harder for us to generalize. The third question we are asking is, what is a meaningful outcome? What does a patient consider meaningful, physicians, stakeholders, and how are we defining this as the patient's preferences may change and as time may change our understanding of disease states, benefits, and risks? All that is great and valuable. And I think um, from my point of view, I would like to see science moving in the direction of listening more to patients about um, uh, variation effects. I would like to see more about outliers and why they are outliers. Um, and I would like to see um, some improvement in people's understanding of preventive medication. And above all, I would like to see uh, a concentration on context because what uh, the rules that apply in one department of prescribing, that is say the treatment of acute disease differ from those managing uh, chronic conditions and differ again from um, population health interventions that involve drugs or procedures or screening. So those are all fertile topics for further discussion. And um, I hope that this has uh, set on the path at least to beginning with those. Okay, thanks, Raj. Thank you, Richard. Bye.